Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. And my name is Quinn Emmett. <laughs> you wish. Hey, Brian. Yeah. This is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on this planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, if it can kill us or turn us into the Andromeda strain, we are in. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, we even had a reverend. And we work together towards action steps our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, their dollar. And I'm increasingly feeling like in some vigilante way with like a like Batman's belt, all the things Ooh, he has. Oh, cool. You know, maybe that should be the fourth thing. Voice, vote, dollar, and like Batwing. Bat, Batwing. Yep. Uh, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, feedback, drawings to us on Twitter. At important not imp, or email us at funtalk at important not important dot com. You can also join thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our uh, free weekly newsletter at important not important dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week's episode is delightful. We're talking about snorkeling. Kind it's of. so fun. Uh, and how what you see when you snorkel, or I guess in this case specifically what you don't see anymore, uh-huh. <laughs> means we're <laughs> we're gonna die. Great. This is going to get everybody to want to listen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really great. It's really delightful. Our guest is Dr. Kim Cobb. And she, she uh, was wonderful. Delightful, uh so impassioned. Yeah. Um and and just uh, I mean using all, all of her immense capabilities to to sway folks like us and uh, listeners out there and also uh, the people that are in charge for better or worse. Uh on on the corporate level, on the market level and elected officials in government to take some fucking action. So the ocean get gets fixed, I guess is the best way to put it. Fixed. Yep. That's where we are. 76 episodes. And that's why I've got it down to. Yep. Um, It's a great one. You should listen to it right now. mm -hmm. Think about how much the idea of snorkeling makes you happy. And then listen to this, go to your happy place and then let us ruin it. (laughs) All right, let's go talk to Dr. Cobb. Let's go. Dr. Cobb. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Cobb, and together we're going to discuss Save the Corals, Save the World. Dr. Cobb, welcome. Thanks for having me. For sure. Very excited and appreciative. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Could we, uh, let's just get started, if you don't mind, doctor, by just telling everybody uh, uh, who you are and and what you do. Yeah. So I am a professor in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech, and I specialize in climate change and specifically how the extremes of climate change are changing in the ocean with uh, anthropogenic uh, greenhouse gases, and also how the past variations uh, before we started emitting greenhouse gases, uh, what their statistics were like, and basically how that whole climate change phenomenon is changing the the structure of these extremes. So that's my obsession, and I work (laughs) in the deep tropics at sites in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and then deep in the rainforest of Borneo, and so that that keeps me keeps me going, keeps me crazy. That sounds just like our office in Studio City, California. Yeah, same thing. Very similar. <laughs> Jungle. Uh, yeah, no, uh, Brian. <laughs> just because Dr. Cobb is here to talk about her obsessions doesn't mean you get to talk about yours. That is a different podcast. Oh, okay. Different I was conversation. Just about to start. So, yep. thank you. If you could not, timing. that would be fantastic. No problem. Different podcast. Okay, let's go. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> we said it before uh, we started recording, but uh, what we'll sort of do here to get this going is um, provide some uh, context for our topic today uh, with you, Doctor, and uh, dig into some um, action-oriented questions that get to uh, the heart of, of why we should give a shit about it and what you do and, and what we can all uh, help to, to do about it and support you. Does that sound good? It sounds awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, hey, we're happy to do it. Well, we'll see. We got to bring it home here. <laughs> Dr. Cobb, we do like to start with one important question uh, to set the tone for our conversation here today. Instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, uh, we'd like to ask uh, Dr. Kim Cobb, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> well, I already gave birth to four people, so I've that's already a, I mean, done some enough. of my part. <laughs> it's enough. Uh, yeah, that's already something. So uh, aside from that kind of outsized contribution to our, our future as a species, you know, I would like to think that I am uh, somebody who is really looking into the future of climate change impacts and with increasing urgency and in somewhat uh, degree of desperation, trying to uh, sound alarm bells, uh, get people prepared, um, accelerate community action to protect themselves and ultimately yell and scream about reducing emissions so that we don't have to face the worst effects of climate change. So I'm kind of kind of trying to try turn the needle here uh, to the to the other side of the equation and and you know really bring down these risks for humanity at large. So you know I wake up every day thinking about that. I'm not sure how much progress I make, but I figure it's a worthy goal. I mean yeah, I mean it's I feel like if there were a worthy goal that would be it. Uh, and so we, we, we thank you for what you're doing. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious because, uh, it is such a grounded, but ambitious and, and powerful mission. I'm curious again, without getting too much in, in, into your history, cause I want to get into what you're working on. Is there a specific relationship you can point to that was a catalyst, uh, for your endeavors and actions to get you to where you are today to, to make you do what you do? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm basically a, a classically trained climate scientist, and that's where I thought I'd spend the rest of my life while policymakers digested those facts and acted uh, accordingly to, to get the kind of policies we need in place driven by those data sets. That's what I thought I would, that's where I thought I would be right now. Mm -hmm. And instead, I find myself in a place where uh, science is broadly attacked, where the facts of the body of work that I have contributed to are denied on a regular basis by the uh, most powerful people in the world. And uh, this is uh, not what I would prefer to be doing, but yet this is increasingly what uh, those of us who are trained in this field are challenged to do, which is stand up and defend our work and defend these facts and yell and scream until they enact the kinds of data-driven policies that will keep communities safe. So that's that's really uh, where we find ourselves. And it's been the last two years that I've been challenging myself to um, redeploy my skill sets <laughs> from classical training in climate science to more applied work, thinking about how I could uh, really help communities that are different at a whole variety of different scales um, move their needles to protect themselves and help us accelerate our transition to a low carbon future. Uh, it's not an easy process, but I feel it, it is extremely rewarding. And it's one that 
I find a, a huge community in in um, in service to that goal as scientists. Again, kind of a massive redeployment here, and it's it's fun to be a part of. Yeah, I, I mean, it it feels fun a lot of the time. A lot of the times, it, it's it can feel very sad. Brian and I are definitely not classically trained climate scientists. Speak for um, yourself. But uh, okay, like I said, we don't need to get into it. But I, I and I've spoken uh, about this before. We we got a comment once from uh, uh, iTunes review, which are across the board five stars. One gentleman gave us three because he said it felt like we were doing what was called virtue signaling, which Brian then explained to me is basically saying things for the sake of being seen as saying them, I guess, or becoming some sort of uh, like a trying to become known about it in some way. I don't know. I'm, I'm not explaining it well, but my retort to that is, is I think like you said, uh, where you said you don't totally want to be doing this specific part of the job. I would love to not have this podcast and to not have to be doing the same, you know, sort of a similar version of that, which is bringing all of these voices and issues to light because we're, we're not paying attention to them and because they're already devastating in, in so many different ways. Um, I, I would just, I would love to not be involved in it in some way. And as much as I am enjoying it and learning so much from it and being inspired by so many folks out there that are doing it, um, it doesn't exactly lift me up a lot of days, but anyways, okay. A little topic for, for what we're going to get into today. So, uh, doctor, sometimes this is super technical. Sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes it's more perspective. What we try to do is many of our listeners are, are driving on scooters right now, so they can't exactly Wikipedia this stuff themselves. We try to dial it down to lowest common denominator for our audience. The scooter, so, scooter riders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scooter riders. Exactly. Who 100% are not wearing helmets, by the way. Um, no, and they're riding on sidewalks. It's a nightmare. They're not allowed to ride on the sidewalks. It's Anyways. written very clearly. Right. Anyway. So the point hey, is... I'm a friend of scooter people as a fellow biker, so gotta shout out to the scooter folks. We are of the same family. We need to work together. Oh, I by love the way, them. We couldn't be, be bigger... We couldn't be bigger. So like, cars got to get out of here. I'm like, yeah, Amsterdam, let's go. I want boats and bikes. That's it. Just protect yourself. Yeah, it's literally, it's not good. The point is what we try to do here is meet our listeners where they are so we can get on the same page because people have a hard time acting without real context, right? So I want to frame this the right way. I think I understand. And, and again, please, please do not take this as an insult to your life's work. Why even our listeners don't understand the implications of something like coral reef bleaching or corals dying off entirely or the Great Barrier Reef going bye-bye. It's it's not that they can't imagine it, right? They can see it. It's 2019. We I can see a live cam of the Great uh, Barrier Reef right now if I wanted to. We can see pictures and we can see timeline video photos just like at, they show the ones of, you know, glaciers that have melted away. It, it's kind of the same thing with all the m- many, many, many insect species we've taken down and are reported, right? Of course, it's terrible, but it's hard to really conceive of, uh, one, I guess because people basically don't go outside anymore, <laughs> and two, <laughs> because people, even our listeners, generally don't understand why insects are important or which ones eat the other ones and why. Um, and the ocean has it even worse. We read these massively damning reports about how the ocean's been Turns out, saving our ass for 100 years now, absorbing something like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like 90% of the carbon we've been spitting out, retaining all of this heat that would otherwise be in the air. But people aren't in the ocean, despite 
so much of humanity living on the coasts around the world. And if they were, if they understood and appreciated it, we wouldn't be dumping so much shit into it or shaking our heads at articles like those and then going back to avocado toast. Coral reefs are incredible and beautiful and and at times nearly alien looking and they're one of the most magnificent features of planet Earth. So people see them get bleached and think that's awful. Maybe we won't go to Anguilla next year. But after everything we've talked about on the show and the people we've talked to and hearing from the listeners, I, I, I feel like sometimes the primary reason why they're not moving mountains to save coral reefs or to understand why they're the tip of the sword is got to at least be in part because in so many ways, shit is very bad up here on land, right in their face all the time, uh, top down. So coral reefs are right down towards the bottom of their list to fix. We can't just, for instance, switch to paper straws to save them and then feel better about ourselves. But that's why we're here today. So I want to help folks understand what it means that the coral reefs are, are bleaching and, and dying off, what it means when that occurs, what the reefs are leading indicators for, uh, keeping in mind everything I just mentioned. Primarily that, again, folks, it turns out, and we'll link to it in the show notes, uh, uh, oceans have been our firewall against truly massive climate effects, uh, and that firewall is now breaking down. So I want to dig into this, Dr. Save the Corals, Save the World. To get everyone literally on the same page, let's take this way back to square one. Dr. Cobb, what is a coral reef? <laughs> so a coral reef is is really a, a big pile of uh, living organisms as well as past organisms that provide the foundation for the living organisms. And these corals are animals uh, at the the coral reefs that we all talk about, the surface coral reefs, you know, these animals are filter feeders and they build these really hard homes uh, made of calcium carbonate. And they have these really cool microscopic plant algae food factories embedded in their tissues as symbionts that uh, provide a huge amount of their energy. And this is an organism that has evolved over, you know, hundreds of millions of years to its current state and has been a perpetual uh, facet and, and feature of our planet Earth over that whole time, wildly successful, you know, surviving mass extinctions and providing refuges for fish, providing structural protection for coastal communities all across the tropics, and of course, jaw-dropping beauty for those of us who have had the fortune of of being uh, in the water with uh, to witness these incredible macroscopic features of our Earth that's visible from space. So uh, these are are just such an amazing s- structure from the microscopic elements uh, all the way up to the macroscopic kind of Earth scale elements of our planet and everything in between. So it's really part of our Earth and 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 uh, part of our part of who we are as humans as well. Everything is connected. I love it. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty recurring theme here as the world breaks yes. down. Turns out. <laughs> as the world breaks down. Well, so I think, I mean, that's a pretty good description of <laughs> why there are coral reefs. They're, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm probably wrong about this, but 
from what I understand, coral reefs are the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. Is that is that right? Even more so than rainforests? Yes, that's true. And that's because of the wealth of microbes that are on the, the reef and invertebrates that are on the reef, all the way up to, you know, the, the denizens that, that we all can see, you know, big fish and right. sharks uh, that call the reef home as well. So uh, the Coral Triangle is an area in the Western Pacific that is the most biodiverse uh, region. And I guess it's home to some millions and millions of species uh, in, in a single, you know, several thousand kilometer square. So it's it's extremely impressive. That is wild. Yeah, I was going to add, I, I got this little tidbit from the internet, so it's probably wrong, but I was curious. Uh, it, uh, despite, this is a quote, despite covering less than 0.1% of the ocean floor, reefs host more than a quarter of all marine fish species, in addition to other other marine animals. Is that sound right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe, you know, closer to 75% of uh, fish species at some point in their life cycle um, can claim a connection to coral reefs. Okay, got it. And with respect to biodiversity, um, very important to recognize the value that they have for drug discovery, not something that most people think about. But oh. there are hundreds of scientists around the world who prospect exclusively on coral reefs for advanced drugs to treat human cancer and human arthritis and human Alzheimer's, judging uh, you really trying to look through the chemical inventories of these amazing systems We're just begun to scratch the surface of what they could potentially provide to us. And instead, we're bleaching them. Good, good, good. So you mentioned that they've been around a long time. H- how long are we talking here? Are, are they are they like uh, sh- sharks been around since the dinos before that, after that? Oh, way before that. So, you know, 260 million years here. So we talk about dinosaurs going extinct 65 million years ago, right, with the big meteorite impact. Uh, we're, we're talking way, way, way back. And so wow. now you're going wow, these are systems that survived the extinction that killed the dinosaurs. And, and yes, they did. And, and these are uh, organisms that survived the ensuing hothouse world uh, 55 million years ago when most of the glaciers were melted and temperatures were much warmer and sea levels are much higher. And many of, of my colleagues look to that world as an analog for future climate states. And yes, they survived that too. And so they are incredibly resilient organisms uh, over geologic time. And this is really an indicator of their success evolutionarily and in, in how much they have adapted over geologic time to weather the ins and outs of natural climate variations. And of course, yet today we are uh, wiping them off of uh, some reefs already and increasingly large swaths of global reefs in the next com- coming decades. And this is uh, already underway. It's uh, ironic and terrible that, um, you know, dinosaurs were around for, uh, you know, tens of millions, if not a hundred plus million years. I can't remember what the exact time frame is. And, you know, Homo sapiens is, what, 200,000 years, something like that. And and coral reefs have survived all that. But we're, we're, we are the things that uh, are taking them down. Is, right. Uh, Great work, everybody. Um, are, 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 are reefs more prevalent in certain parts of the world or the ocean naturally? Is it warm water, cold water, deep water, shallow water? Yeah, so generally warm water. 
but there are some corals that are adapted to deep water environments. So they can live down to you know, a kilometer into the ocean. And there are reefs that are adapted to cold water systems that are hanging out, you know, up, up in Ireland, <laughs> um, off, off in the North no. Sea. So they're not, the, they don't look the same, of course, as the corals that uh, you would dive in Hawaii or Florida or, or Tahiti. But um, there are many, many, many different kinds of, of corals. Um, and so, you know, that's part of the amazing magic of corals is how many environments you can find them in today. Really, the bulk of the coral reefs lie around the equator and then you need to have land near the surface. And we have some very deep oceans <laughs> covering large portions of the equator. And so that's not where corals grow. And so the warmest water and the shallowest seas, as, as you probably can guess, are in the West Pacific. And that's where we have these you know, true hot spots of coral biodiversity and reefs that have evolved over um, really tens of thousands of years to be their, their current majestic scope. And um, these are the reefs, unfortunately, that rest really closest to the threshold of water temperatures that um, we're exceeding with large-scale ocean warming. And these, unfortunately, are going to be the first reefs that are likely to succumb to global warming. All Got right. it. Well, Coral Reef 101, complete. Done. Got it. I feel like we should get a badge or something. Thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, I don't know if we earned um, that, but go for it. All right. Okay. So, doctor, let's talk about uh, bleaching. I mean, you know, just what is that? Uh, why is that happening? Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. So, coral bleaching is something that uh, corals have adapted to survive very short lived ocean warming events. So, how short lived? Maybe two, three, four months the kinds of temperature spikes that occurred over geologic time. And this is a response that uh, enables them to go into a completely dormant state and uh, really avoid the damage of having their algal uh, photosymbionts that are embedded in their tissues uh, producing too many oxygen-free radicals and, and damaging the coral tissue. Instead of providing <laughs> a net benefit through food production, they are providing a net harm when ocean temperatures get too warm. And so literally the coral expels these colorful algal photosymbionts from its tissues, and which leaves it completely white. It's a colorless organism without its uh, algal uh, symbionts inside of it. And it also is missing that energy source uh, in, the, in the form of um, sugars from photosynthesis. And so it goes into a state of absolute dormancy. And when I say absolute, I mean absolute. Um, it doesn't build a skeleton. It ceases all metabolic function and it goes uh, into this um, kind of sleep state. And it's waiting for ocean temperatures to get cool enough to uh, be recolonized by photosymbionts and resume its, its normal operations. And unfortunately, if this does not occur in a very short amount of time, the coral will starve to death. And that's how you go from a healthy coral to a bleached coral. And then if the ocean temperatures remain too warm, uh, the, the coral, coral colony will die and it can't come back. So and you have to start from scratch. And so that's what we're seeing across these reefs with ocean warming. So quick question there. You said um, they'll go dormant um, for 
and uh, remain that way for a short period of time, hoping that uh, temperatures will drop. Um, obviously, you are uh, basically Wonder Woman and work in geological timescales, uh, as opposed to Brian and I. What does a short amount of time mean? Did you say it was a couple months? Yeah. Is, are we talking months, years, yeah. decades? Oh, we. Oh my goodness, we are talking months. We're talking yeah. months. So, gotcha. I mean, literally, the coral may be drawing on reserve. Uh, food stores or, or fat in its organism to try to limp through that period of um, of dormancy and remain alive. But if water temperatures don't come back down in a matter of months, then it will die. And so as coral reef scientists, we monitor the um, magnitude of the warming event that a given reef is experiencing, as well as the duration. And so it's really a function of the magnitude and the duration. So the warmer the event then the shorter the duration that the coral will have before it goes into a more acute stage of starvation okay. and the, the uh, cooler the event, and, but it can be slightly longer, then the coral will have a better chance. And so there, that is because there are stages of bleaching. So a coral will uh, maybe only partially bleach, uh, not fully bleach, fully bleached, a perfectly white coral really just has a matter of a month or two, if that before it's going to tip into uh, coral death. And so when we go out in these reefs that are experiencing acute warming, um, we see a whole rainbow of different scales of bleaching from corals that look perfectly fine. And then right next to it will be a coral that is bleached 100%. And then right next to that will be a dead coral. And this just reflects the diversity that we have on these reefs and the different species that have different resistance levels. And it's not till you get to the events that are super extreme that you're going to start wiping out um, most of those corals all the way through most of the species and all the way through most of the size classes, et cetera. It takes a lot. But that, yet that is what we're seeing in these uh, last several years. Jeez. When did uh, we first notice that, you know, that this was happening, that, that coral reefs were under threat? And, and when did, you know, the uh, ocean science community as a whole start going like, oh, we, this is serious? Well, corals were always projected to be you know, the canary in the coal mine for ocean warming because they sit so close to uh, the bleaching threshold. And you know, it's something that they have developed naturally and they have to be adaptive because they sit at these really, really warm waters and you know, weather happens in the ocean too. Uh, but yet it was really in 1997, 1998, that we had the first global scale coral bleaching and mortality event associated with what was at the time the largest El Nino event on record. So this is a natural ocean event. It lasts for six to nine months. It's born in the tropical Pacific, but it can spread very quickly to adjoining basins of the Indian Ocean and Atlantic. And it brings water temperatures that can be in excess of, you know, 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than average for months on end. And so that really wiped out a very large number of reefs across the Indian and Pacific Oceans in particular. And it was the first event that was surveyed, even at some of the more remote sites, um, in real time by coral reef scientists, because it's an event that we saw coming through our climate prediction capabilities, and people were able to mobilize. And so we had the first comprehensive surveys, and it was very alarming to see that. But at that point, we still didn't know Uh, what the pace of ocean warming would be over the next several decades. 
And so now, of course, we have the 2015-2016 El Nino event as the um, new record-breaking El Nino event occurring on an even warmer ocean baseline, much more destruction than that event. And of course, we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop with the next El Nino event. And it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's taken, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people many, many, many months of their lives to go out and collect these kinds of data that help us see the sheer magnitude of the threat to modern day reefs and what we've already lost. Wow. So all, just thinking about this, the way headlines are phrased sometimes and the way that moves into mainstream conversation. And I can see how people say things like, boy, the oceans are warming. And oh, did you see that the coral reefs are getting bleached too? When, when probably the more correct understanding in translation is uh, coral reefs are uh, going through all these different stages of, of bleaching and some of them are, are starting to die, which means, you know, severe ocean warming is right around the corner. Does, does that make more sense? As, as you mentioned there, the, as <laughs> well, the canary in the coal mine sort of? Yeah, I mean, the, the, real, the real story, yeah, I mean, I think the real story is that oceans are already warming mm-hmm. dramatically and corals are already dying, right. period. And it's going to get worse. Right. So that that's really the bottom line from our perspective as climate scientists and coral scientists. Um, this train is already well underway, True. and it's a it's a serious wake up call about how vulnerable ecosystems are, but also how vulnerable we are mm-hmm. when we start to lose a major piece of function of our Earth system, and we don't even know really what that's going to do. To be honest with you. Uh, but it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, uh, I've never been. My therapist can tell you can tell you never been a huge fan of of uh, the things I don't know, of being scared of the things I don't know. The, that is uh, that's the dark place for me. Um, so, <laughs> all of that considered, Doctor, do you? And I know you've testified to Congress and things like that. Do you, Do you ever still find it difficult to make your case in the grand scheme of shit we need to fix, like right now? Does that make sense? Uh, it just seems like every day folks are being yeah. inundated by contribute to this, do this, this is on fire, this is not on fire, this is underwater, this and this. Where do you find the most success? And I guess also, where do you find the largest frustrations uh, con- consistently? Well, I mean, I find the most success and hope in reminding myself that not everybody has to care about the same thing. And not everybody's going to care about the fact that coral reefs are dying today. Mm -hmm. Some people will care passionately enough that it's going to get them out of their chair and get them off of their computer and into the street and make them pick up that phone and and call their elected official. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not going to work for everybody. And so I I just remember that and realize that it takes uh, communicating in a very diverse way. Uh, way with very diverse people, and it's going to take very diverse voices with different stories to tell. I'm only one of hundreds of stories that we could tell about climate change. I happen to care a lot about the ocean. Um, I happen to share that love with many of my fellow humans on this planet. And so for me, it's a big motivating factor. But I think when we get down to talking to folks who would prioritize uh, human lives or our economy 
um, et cetera, over something as remote as a tropical Pacific coral reef. I get that. And I, I need to be ready with those talking points uh, just as forcefully and passionately as I can speak about a coral reef in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So it's not a one-size-fits-all equation, and I can't get upset by the fact that not everybody has moved to the highest level of action by dying reefs. <laughs> I, I get sure, that, sure. Um, and we have right. to work. That's why we need multiple voices and multiple perspectives. I, I think that's so nuanced and helpful, which is not waking up and going like, why can't I get the entire world to give a shit about coral reefs? It's almost like yeah. picking your spots and understanding that there's, there is this avalanche of things happening, but, but if, you can, if you can find the right people... Um, those people can can hopefully make a big difference. So, hopefully, that's some of the folks out there listening because uh, it is it is a tremendous thing to see these things in real life, and it is truly uh, jarring and, and damning to to then see them uh, dormant or dying, um, and think this something must not be good here. This this cannot be right. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts, so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. So we talked a little bit, you hinted at this earlier, Let's talk about all of the sectors that disappearing coral reefs are impacting, because it's not just, you know, the, the biodiversity of, of the local ecosystem itself. It's, uh, I, I believe you mentioned tourism, um, there's substance issues, and, and I believe, and, and please educate me on this, um, coral reefs p- provide some uh, flood protection as well in some, in some ways. I guess it, tourism first, I mean, you mentioned so many of these corals are in tropical areas places where economies are heavily driven by tourism and diving and, and things like that. Are we already seeing repercussions in those areas? Well, I think that, you know, you hear so many competing narratives coming out of Australia right now that has such a major portion of their economy tied to tourism on the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. And you have a elected government that um, would like to trumpet a story of resilience and recovery um, from the latest rounds of bleaching and mortality and pitting directly against evidence from the scientific community that this is a train wreck that's already underway and a couple sunshades and uh, a couple uh, you know million dollars is not going to cut it. Uh, you have to reduce emissions yesterday, last decade. And so you really do see this playing out and the the death throes of uh, those people with deep vested interests tied to the maintenance of the fossil fuel industry and uh, those moneyed interests 
uh, really telling a story that is completely false from a scientific perspective. But on the other hand, you have communities like those in Florida that are uh, deeply tied uh, culturally and economically as well to the coral reefs, much closer to home, of course, here. And they've been engaged in, in decades of trying to do whatever they can to apply scientific methods and conservation efforts to uh, help their coral reefs uh, get through some of this and some of the repeated hits that those reefs have taken. So um, I do believe we're already seeing dam wide-scale damages from uh, ocean warming and associated disease and degradation. And I think that that's pretty clear at sites like Hawaii. I think that's pretty clear at sites like Florida um, and sites like the Great Barrier Reef. And it's just a matter of, you know, really how we can disentangle the economic data of mm -hmm. what it might have been like <laughs> if these right. reefs had been as um, resplendent as they were 10 or 20 years ago and what's going on right now, given all the other uh, economic um, uh, hits that, that communities are taking for one reason or another. But this is clearly going in a bad direction for those communities. And, and many of them are waking up to this reality and trying to do something about it and lobby their elected officials. Sure. I think back to, uh, without getting political here, when when Obama did, did uh, you know, followed through on a lot of the, the bailouts of the economy back in, in, in 2009. And one of the numbers uh, they always talked about was jobs saved and how it was a huge number, but Job saved is, isn't as impactful uh, as, you know, jobs lost or number of people who lost their health care or things like that. And like, I, I think about you talking about mm. disentangling the economic front, which is like, we, we, I wish it were easier to say, uh, to, to paint a more specific nuanced picture of like, look, if the reefs weren't dying, this is what your tourism numbers would look like. But that's, I imagine that that's a difficult task. I don't envy that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we have these large scale economic models that help us understand the economic damages from climate change. And there, there are so many deep vulnerabilities across our economy with respect to climate change. Of course, most notably sea level rise and the trillions of dollars of infrastructure we have along the coast here in the United States, let mm -hmm. alone the global economy. Um, things like uh, critical infrastructure for uh, food production and vulnerabilities to crops. Um, these are all things that we see playing out right now as well. And so I think, you know, for those portions of the economy that are tied to coral reefs in the United States, it's a very small number. But in Australia, it's a very, very large number. Sure. So some of these sure. conversations, we can look to Australia and the vulnerabilities that they face that are so acutely tied to climate change. Mm. We're talking about massive wildfires, um, really damaging floods. Um, and the loss of their reefs, um, they're really on the leading edge. <laughs> sure. And so we can see these pitted narratives taking place in a way that um, they will continue to evolve in this country, um, but they're really facing very, very near-term profound economic threats from climate change down under. So talk to me about subsidence. I guess, for lack of a better word, of the edible marine species, the ones the ones that are uh, consumed, uh, farmed, fished around the world, wh which species are being most affected by this, by the ecosystem, uh, the, the bulk of their ecosystem uh, dying? Where is being affected the most? And I guess, where are they going? And then I guess, how is that affecting those local economies that depend on that for their own 
food, but also for um, the local economies. And let me know if none of that makes sense. Yeah, so <laughs> that that makes sense, but there's a lot going on there, as your question implies. Shocker! Big surprise. Um, yeah, you know there. Yeah, there there are there are you know hundreds of millions of people who depend on coral reefs um, and the fish that that are living on those reefs for their primary source of protein. And so this is really a food security issue that we're facing when we talk about degrading reefs. Um, at the same time. Many of these reefs and associated reef fish are under heavy overfishing pressures and other kinds of environmental threats related to uh, coastal uh, developments and um, unsustainable practices in these uh, subsistence communities that it's kind of, you know, just every man and woman for themselves and uh, very little regulation, deep corruption, um, very little protection for the reefs that are providing so much bounty. And so this is just a, a compound. Climate change is, is one of many threats that these uh, communities face that are so dependent on the reefs, which is, you know, such a uh, uh, kind of devastating, devastating prospect that we'll have these uh, very large and, and very poor communities that are going to be uh, undercoming their immediate food security threat from, from the loss of, of coral reefs. The whole question of whether um, and how fish species respond to uh, significantly degraded reefs is one is an area of very, very active research. And so, you know, at my research site in the middle of the tropical Pacific, an island called Christmas Island, you know, we witness the destruction of 85% of the coral reef in 2016 related to the massive El Nino event that uh, really swept the world and, and threatened so many reefs across the world. So we lost 85% of the coral reef, you know, over six months. God and damn. so the wow. fish, the reaction of the fish communities to that disturbance is an, is an area of very important study. And it's significantly lagged from when we lost the reef because, you know, they're, fish that rely on the coral tissue for food. There are fish that rely on the corals for their nurseries. There are fish that rely on the tiny microbes that live in the coral. I mean, it's a it's a whole cascade of effects that takes years to fully see and witness. Some of these fish are very large and they live for many years. And so those will be some of the ones that we may see impacted uh, with the highest lag. But Unfortunately, uh, we have seen uh, big hits to the fishing uh, populations uh, at Christmas Island after this event, and we continue to study those in uh, partnership with um, coral ecologists and marine conservation biologists. Uh, that is not my work, by the way. Mm -hmm. These are amazing scientists out of University of Victoria, uh, Julia Baum, leading those efforts. If folks are interested in looking her up, I think she's down on the island right now. She sends me videos of baby corals, and it oh, makes wow. my day. Uh, we should have her on the cast. That's right. We'll do one of those uh, underwater oh, interviews. She's, she's amazing. So, is that a thing? Wait, you didn't know. You got to go the uh, the uh, the California Science Center in Los Angeles. They've got this great yeah. little feature in their aquarium. In there, it's not the world's biggest aquarium. It's beautiful. But uh, at eleven o'clock every day, the diver who feeds the fish will go down. the The aquarium has this big two story window, and the diver will go down, and all the kids in the museum are rallied, and they can. The diver has a microphone underwater uh, wow. in front of the window and will answer the kids' questions from underwater. And, and kids are just like, holy shit. Like, how is this yeah. possible? It's the coolest thing in the world. Wow, um, great. So we'll have to do a podcast. Brian, we'll strap you in there with the sharks. It'll be great. Yeah, I was going to say, can I go in? Sure. Uh, 
Dr. Cobb, so <laughs> moving towards action, um, what are uh, governments and NGOs uh, and such doing to support the coral reefs directly? We know uh, the U.S. federal government isn't doing much. What are places like Australia and, and I guess, more of the tropical locations doing? Um, again, knowing that we can't just, the terrible example is just switch to paper straws. Um, what's going on, if anything? Right. Well, I, I do think that there are there are many trends, longstanding trends afoot that are really important to set aside large swaths of coral reefs um, and, and protect them from the other kinds of threats that so many tropical reefs face and hope that they can provide a refuge for corals that may be able to make it through these next decades of acute temperature stress and ocean acidification, which is something we didn't talk about, but which is also a, a very major threat to uh, continued prosperity of reefs under more acidic conditions. Corals have a harder time growing their skeletons. And so we really have that approach of, of you know, sequestering some reefs and hoping that this will enhance the resilience of this precious ecosystem and, and provide seeds for future reefs. I think that's a great approach and that's important. We see that happening across the tropics. Um, regulation enforcement of that is critical. If there's no regulation enforcement, you might as well not have that uh, marine protected area in place. Mm -hmm. But what is becoming increasingly apparent is reefs, no reef, protected or not, can escape the large scale train wreck that is ocean warming sure. right now and addition of ocean acidification in coming decades. So it doesn't matter how protected you are hmm. if uh, you know you lose 90% uh, of, your, of your corals in that system over a, sure. a year of acute ocean warming. And so what has become the rallying cry of the coral community, those of us who have witnessed this, who understand the problem, who understand the projections, is that we must absolutely move to reduce emissions now very, very aggressively to give corals the best chance of making it through the coming decades. And there will be no Band-Aid and there will be no magic wand to wave to reverse this trend and protect reefs that are economically critical, ecologically critical, and just, you know, an intrinsic part of what we call Earth uh, if we don't reduce emissions urgently now. And so that's that's really become the uh, rallying cry of the coral scientific community and something that um, you, you won't hear out of the politicians' mouths who say that they're developed a new $10 million fund for Great Barrier Reef protection um, without mentioning emissions reductions. Uh, we're going to try to hold them to the science and the facts uh, that, that really motivate uh, this uh, dramatic and urgent reduction in greenhouse gases. When we say things like hold them to hold them to these numbers and science and facts, sometimes I really do just want to go like pure vigilante Batman and actually like hold them yeah. to it, like like just chain them to something. For example, yeah. it's just because clearly the current <laughs> methods on their aren't getting through. Or something. <laughs> yeah, just pin like, it, what, staple it, nail gun it. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever we got to do, Brian's down for really anything. <laughs> and I just want to I just want to double check. There definitely is no magic wand. No, there, there's okay. not, not okay. right now. And so some of the work that I'm really kind of, yeah, I mean, some of the work I'm really excited about, which is, 
you know, still kind of sci-fi um, is the idea that we might be able to uh, genetically engineer heat-resistant corals that can help oh. reseed devastated reefs um, with these resistant organisms and provide the reefs of you know the next century mm. from you know resistant breeding stocks like you know you breeze a breed a prize poodle you could breed a prize coral i guess um and this work is actively underway and critically important very very expensive tough stuff it's not easy to grow corals much easier to grow a poodle trust me and so what you want to do is is support these research efforts that are really forward-looking they may not be able to deliver that promise today, mm-hmm. but if we don't invest in those approaches, those science-driven approaches, mm-hmm. uh, those research-driven approaches today, we won't mm-hmm. have them in 50 years. Right. We and have so to this do these is one of those examples of there's no, yeah, there, there's, yeah, we have to, you know, rub our head and chew gum at the same time. We, mm-hmm. we are just going to have to aggressively reduce emissions to give them the best chance. And then because we know we have a, a train wreck in front of us anyway, um, it, it really is important to continue to invest in the best science to inform the solutions that, uh, you know, we, we hope we don't have to turn to as aggressively um, as, as they say in the worst case scenarios. But uh, we really want to be able to help corals limp through this century as best we can. And we need all those tools deployed, not just the ones that are undergoing uh, research in these tank experiments and the breeding of prize corals, mm-hmm. but also those folks who are out there diving on devastated reefs today, trying to understand how fish populations are responding to the train wrecks that have already occurred. We have these natural laboratories, these crystal balls to help us understand what we're facing in an ocean that is so profoundly altered. Um, like these ecosystems are. And, you know, ultimately we can use these kind of degraded environments as laboratories for studying um, magic wands of tomorrow, right? We can understand what works, what doesn't work. And so these are are very precious opportunities, but we need to really deploy the full arsenal of science and engineering uh, to try to, um, you know, really help corals get through this and the communities that they depend on and frankly, the full function of our ocean and our earth. Sounds pretty fucking good to me. Um, that, that moves yeah. us uh, towards action. Like you were saying, we need to invest in these things, which is Brian's favorite part of the show. It is. Uh, I've mentioned it briefly at the very start um, that what, you know, our goal here is to provide, you know, very specific action uh, steps that our listeners can uh, take to support you um, and your mission. And we like to break it down into sort of three categories. Uh, 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 voice, vote, and and dollar. So let's get into that. Um, and let's start with their voice. W- what are actionable, specific questions that we can all be asking of uh, our representatives to to support you? So the most important thing we need to do right now is to reduce emissions dramatically at scale across the entire economy. And the most efficient way to do that is to enact a price on carbon. And there's, it's very clear that's the, that's when you know we're actually getting serious about reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a bill on the floor of the House right now called the Energy Innovation Act, which uh, just does just that. It puts a price on carbon, and it's not in the form of a tax. It is something that comes back to every American in the form of a check, 
And it's therefore called a revenue neutral carbon tax. It is the main goal of a group called the Citizens Climate Lobby. So if you really want to get engaged, you can fix many, many, many problems of climate change with a price on carbon. And there's a local chapter near you, I guarantee it, Citizens Climate Lobby. And that's their, they have a laser focus on this and they've had it for quite a few years and they finally have a bill, actually has words in it to put a price on carbon. Now we need more Republicans to support the idea of a price on carbon. Um, They talk about the free market as a solution to almost everything. Well, let's let the free market decide how to quickly reduce emissions and win economically at the same time. And there are many ways to do that. And the market can really find those ways if we have a price on carbon. And so that's what we need. We need folks to really uh, step up and call their elected officials and ask them to support and sponsor this bill that's floating around. And if they don't like that one, challenge them to say, okay, well, you know, how do you want to put a price on carbon? Because <laughs> that's what needs to happen here. We need a federal price on carbon. Um, you can also point to successful policy labs in the northeastern U.S. and in California where carbon markets have been in place and the world didn't end. So <laughs> I point people to, to look at those, um, those states and how they have fared, and they've fared very well. And so we want to win the low-carbon race of the 21st century as a country. We don't want to be left behind economically and um, really uh, left outside of the, the the biggest global trend of the century. So that's what I would ask people to do that is the most important thing. The other thing I would ask them to do is to think about how they're going to get the energy to sustain their engagement for this decades-long battle that we will be waging. And I, I actually mean that quite seriously because it's very overwhelming. This is a intergenerational relay race, as I call it. I just want to run as far and as fast as I can to hand off the baton to the next generation. And they're going to have to run as far and as fast as they can, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so it, it's it's overwhelming. And in the face of overt climate denial of facts and science, in the face of a cascade of impacts that are raining down upon us uh, in, in, in incredible crescendo, it's it becomes a question that's really important. How do you derive energy to stay engaged? And with that, I would say sometimes it feels like giving money to Democratic candidates in the bottomless pit of fundraising is not... <laughs> energizing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would say sometimes making phone calls to your policymaker that, you know, doesn't really care, doesn't seem like it's getting anywhere. How do you personally sustain an engagement? And this is a personal answer. I will tell you for me, it involves deep engagement in my local city governance structures where I can see a connection directly between my actions and results on the ground. And how that chain, that value chain goes from me to my city, to my state, to the federal government. I, I see that more clearly when I'm, I'm engaged in my local community. I'm also become completely carbon obsessed, mm-hmm. which is not saving the planet, right? I'm not really saving the planet with my solar panels and biking to work and sure. vegetarian diet and composting, etc. But it allows me to feel more aligned with my life's goals and the values that I care about. 
And it gives me great energy to keep making those phone calls to elected officials to keep showing up for hearings about the uh, utilities decisions. And it makes me writing more checks to those Democratic candidates (laughs) because I see how it all adds up. And I, I feel I feel rewarded every single day when. Um, when I, I look at my solar panels and I, I love biking to work and I love my new bike family of, of crazy advocates <laughs> um, who are in Atlanta fighting for bike lanes across the entire city. This, this is where we find community. This is where we see connections between each other. This is where we build resilience. This is where we build and, and derive energy for this fight. So that's the second thing I would say. Ask yourself, how are you going to get the energy to continue in this battle? in the face of all this devastation. And, and second of all, you know, keep your eyes on the big prize. Let's fight for a price on carbon at any scale that we can, but let's not leave the federal government out because we cannot afford it. I, I, I love every bit of that and, and, and couldn't agree more. There's this big discussion among, you know, climbing clean energy nerds about, you know, does it matter if you're taking personal steps? Shouldn't you right, just be right. fighting the utilities and for carbon price and all this? And it's like, well, you can fucking do both. And also, I mean, at least to me personally, what I've noticed on the grassroots level and among communities, both hyper local and local or down my street or, or bigger in, you know, I live in, Brian and I live in a, a county that's comprised of 88 cities. It's bigger than 40 states. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, when Perfect. when when people are personally invested, they're probably going to be more likely to hold the people in power to task because they feel like they're doing their part, even though it's not going to move the needle. Like you said, you're not saving the world with your solar panels, um, right. but you feel like you're making a fucking difference and it makes you yeah. a little more likely to stand up to these people and say, hey, man. Remember when you got elected by the people, all of whom now are fighting for bike lanes and solar panels? Like, do your part. Do your you got one job. One job. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I, I just think people are looking for a way to to make a difference. And even if that difference is just in your family or just in your workplace, it really adds up. And the other thing I would say is that the, the deeper I engage in obsessions about carbon, which I've gone really down the cuckoo's nest on this, <laughs> um, the more I see that there's so much low hanging fruit that that sits between my family, my house um, you know, and, and me personally and, you know, my workplace, Georgia tech is a small city, right? Sure. And, you know, I am a, I'm a faculty member there. I, I have a unique voice and, you know, we could start moving that city down the road to a low carbon future. And every sure. employee of a major organization could start to think about that as well. And so this, this completely false battle between individual and collective action, um, I think is just so damaging and it doesn't allow us to see that it's, it's not just me or, or my utility. It's, it's every institution that sits between that we need to come with us. And we all have access to these levers on that spectrum from sure. myself to, sure. to the monopoly utility in Georgia, um, to the state house, to sure. D.C., and and we need to reach for those and we need to drive energy and we need to, you know, pump it up the value chain and, yeah. and point point down the value chain and say, hey, I, this is what I'm happy about today. And this is what I'm gunning for tomorrow. And this is my process and it's my road and it doesn't need to look like yours. It'll look very, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. But right. we can't be judging each other. There's no one size fits all. Um, do what you can. Stay in the fight. 
build community, lift each other up, celebrate diverse approaches and voices. Is it really so hard? I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> right. sound so hard to me. And yet, right. and yet Twitter. And yet. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's a different yet. discussion. We're going to need All a yet. couple of bottles of bourbon before we get into that one. Right. Exactly. Awesome. Um, uh, doctor, it, it, it's been so awesome. It's, we've had you for an hour here and we'll, uh, we'll let you go because we know that you've uh, got many other things to do, but seriously, thank you so, so much for your time today. Sure. Um, just, we have, we have just one more, uh, little segment that we like to call not a lightning round. Uh, and we just have just some questions for you. Just quick, little, all right? quick little questions. Um, uh, doctor, when was, um, the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Oh my goodness. I think it was in college when I realized that I would make a terrible doctor and that the planet was dying <laughs> and, and that, you know, I might have a role in the earliest generation of scientists who are waking up to this reality and what a life that would be. And that would certainly consume my brain and my heart for the rest of my life. And that was why I changed to environmental science from pre-med and oh, wow, what a good decision that was. <laughs> uh, what kind of doctor were, did you, were you interested in being? I don't know. I think that was part of the problem. I could never uh, figure that out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Got it. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. Do I really like people that much? Uh, no. Right, right. Ooh, corals. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and rainforest. Yeah, it could be worse. Uh, we just got to make sure they don't go away. And then you got to be a doctor again. Um, That's right. uh, Dr. Cobb, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, six months. There are mm-hmm. so many people. Getting specific. Um, you know, I will say, yeah. So I will say somebody like Greta Thunberg. It would be one of the most obvious answers, but she's, my um, she's just a representative of a whole cohort of folks that have brought new meaning to my work and um, moved the conversation and the, the important dialogues and discussions outside of the walls of science, um, where there's this, you know, protected, you know, these are the, these are the voices we need to listen to over there. Mm-hmm. And and no, there's a whole group of powerful stakeholders who are just as passionate as me, if not more, mm-hmm. um, out there fighting for the same outcomes and using very different language coming from very different voices. So that's just one of many voices just in the last six months that have brought um, just incredibly new lines of, of thought for me, stimulating lines of thought and and renewed purpose and passion. So I am so grateful for all those people who have joined this battle and dedicated their lives to this battle. Um, we need a lot more folks, but um, there, there are really any number of ways to, to stand. Sure. I love it. Love it. Um, Kim, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? What's your self-care? What's your Kim time? <laughs> you're you're going you... to laugh. I mean, lately, lately I have been absolutely obsessed with the output on my solar panels. And <laughs> I have an app. Yes. Nerd. I, yeah. I have an app. There's an app for that. Turns out there's Love an app it. for that. And of course. I go on my app. And I check my production for the day and I check my carbon neutrality, how close I am. I think about how I could further tighten my belt to achieve, you know, carbon positive living instead of 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, dry, drawing down carbon or reducing carbon actively rather than just not consuming it. But um, I, I probably check that app uh, probably about 20 times a day. Um, <laughs> Wait, where are we at right now? Days. And on my good days, I'm probably like on five times a day. Um, and I'm away from home, but out of my element. And so, you know, I'm mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. yearning to see my tentacles every day. So I, I see them on my app. But on my good days, I go through the whole day. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even check my panels today. What a great day. Um, so that's what I do lately just because I got them turned on in the last month. Love it. But before that, and every day, biking to work has been the single most important component of my mental health routine. And so when I don't get on my bike every day, like now when I'm away, I, mm-hmm. I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my brain. And it, it just throws me off back to a place that, you know, was, was one of passivity, of acute overwhelm and sense of isolation. And, and so when I get on my bike, I see people in the park. I pass bikers. I remind myself what I'm fighting for with the city government. Uh, I remind mm-hmm. myself that it all adds up. I remind myself that I'm in it every single day. And, and that has become just so important for me. So that's why I say it doesn't really matter what the carbon is there. It's just about what energy you derive from your choices and how they add up for you and keep you in the game. And so that's my other answer to that question. Sure. I love it. Love yeah, the day I just, days I don't run are the ones where I feel like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. I'm just like, bye-bye. Crazy <laughs> now. <laughs> Last one. Last one. If you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what would it be? Oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've had a wow. wide range of books. I would say Naomi Oresti's Merchants of Doubt. Because the that was when I really was forced to open my eyes to the depths and persistence and just sheer inertia of the climate denial machinery and how it has infiltrated our government, how it is tied genetically to the uh, tobacco uh, lies and vested interests and battles of the 1960s and 70s. Sometimes the same people involved. So those kinds of facts are so impactful. And I think it's helpful to see the full extent of what we're up against and how you may think that you are amassing your personal opinions to not believe in climate change or that we have a problem. But in reality, you are victim of a well-orchestrated campaign to keep this out of the public dialogue and to bury facts and evidence and smear scientists. <laughs> you are a victim to that. So that's the book I would Amazon Prime to him. And I would, I would love to read it to him and then follow up discussion with him because um, I believe in having new conversations once facts and, and truth are on the table. I love it. Incredible. Even <clears throat> with him, that's so good of you. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Above, um, above and beyond, Doctor. Oh, absolutely. Any day. I, I am famous for I'm famous for inviting any conversation with Donald Trump any day. He wants to call me, he knows where to find me. I would really enjoy that conversation. So if, you if could he's just listening, pass us in on that, be, that would be great. Um, yeah, if we could listen. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I'll let uh, you guys know. You guys have the exclusive. I'll give you the exclusive on that. <laughs> 
you're swell. Uh, Dr. Cobb, man, we can't thank you enough for obviously taking the time so to much. come here, for locking your children and your dog out of the house, and uh, and for obviously all that you're doing for the corals, for the oceans, for for everyone affected. Uh, that includes all of us. This is one of those things. It's I, Again, I... Uh, I don't not necessarily it's easy to understand it, but I, I I get why sometimes people are like, oh, corals, that's too bad. But um, it's it's not great. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a good indicator that we need to be doubling, tripling, uh, 10xing, 100xing our efforts here. So yeah. thank you so much. I also want to thank you for all the work that you do. It's just so important that people find any number of different avenues to information that they might care about. So thank you for allowing folks to to see things in a new way from a different perspective. So quite literally the least we could do. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at important, not imp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at important, not important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.